Welcome to the Feed Long Lunch. It's where we like to take a slightly deeper dive into conversation with some of our guests, exploring New Zealand's food stories, personalities and future. So grab a plate, a snack or a glass and join us for a slightly bigger slice of the conversation. And then remember to join us at thefeed.co.nz for more. We're here in the feed, the long lunch. We're talking to Anna King Shahab about an amazing community of uh, foodies on Facebook called Lazy Susan. Um, so I would just welcome to the show, but I would love to ask you, how did the Lazy Susan community begin? And what is it that has brought this community of 25,000 people, Aucklanders who love food, together? So it began... Um, as all good things do, I guess, with a conversation between Anthony and I, I can't specifically remember what spurred the conversation, but we, I think we were kind of lamenting the fact that there were certain cuisines that were completely absent in Auckland's food scene. And also there were, um, there were things that we thought, you know, should be shouted out from the rooftops about that weren't being, um, that weren't being praised out loud because they didn't get the airtime in traditional media channels. Um, you know, places that didn't have budget for PR, that kind of thing. We thought, well, wouldn't it be great to have a kind of a space where we could push things that we would like to see in the Auckland food scene or, or, and also, f- first of all, figure out whether we were just alone and thinking, why are there these gaps or are there, are there gaps that other people are, you know, feeling bereft about as well and also to yeah to to basically show a bit of love to those types of places that don't make it into the what's new and hot lists um I suppose that's really why we started out um and also because I I felt like there was a lot in the digital space that was directed at um as I just mentioned what's new and hot there's there was a lot of that and there was then also a lot of um review based uh, platforms, um, user review based platforms, and um, it felt it's like, a safe space. <laughs> yeah, safe space. It, that wasn't even really a conscious thing at the beginning, but it was more about hey, um, we want to create a space where there's room for more. There's more than just hey, this place is opened, it's great, you should go, or um, I went there and the fries were cold, never going back. So mm. it felt like there was a big gap in between. Mm. Um, so the community's grown uh, to, as you know, as I say, it's over 25,000 people now. And then this particular community is specifically about Auckland, but it's also sprung up some other sister communities. And it all happens on Facebook, sometimes dozens of posts and stories a day being shared by foodies. Talk to us about who the average, you know, Lazy Susan member is. Yes, yeah, so still overwhelmingly Auckland-based at the moment. Um, we do have members in the Auckland community from around the country and internationally, and, and often those will be people that have ties to Auckland. They have got family here or they used to live here or they're planning on living here again um, or they're just interested in what's happening, that maybe they're wanting to travel to Auckland. Um, you know, the age group is really anywhere from, I guess, you know, you've got, late teens all the way through but primarily we're probably late 20s to early 50s um that that would be you know 
the the largest sector there. Um, and then the travel side, we we're really wanting to build that up. I mean, you know, hello, COVID times. <laughs> <laughs> not the best time to start any kind of travel content, but we definitely have seen a growth in that in terms of domestic um, domestic travel, you know, people wanting to know where's great in different parts of the country. And hopefully that will also grow internationally as we, as the borders open. Mm. Uh, why do you think people are still so um, not just fascinated about uh, fascinated by sharing food stories or sharing their favorite places, but um, what what is that key difference between say somebody that wants to go to every new place that's opening and somebody that actually just wants to know the secret hidden gems that are tucked away in the neighborhoods of you know New Lynn or Henderson or you know out in Otahu? What, what what's the what's the difference in thinking between those between those two things? I'm not even sure if it's, you know, if they're mutually exclusive. I think a lot of people, myself included, I like to know what's new out there and I like to check out new places as often as I can, but I don't want that to be the exclusive, um, you know, um, be all and end all of, of how I choose to eat and drink out. Um, I definitely personally like to mix it up. So, you know, and, and, and the same kind of goes, I guess, um, when you're talking about what kind of um, what kind of food offering you're looking at from high end to a little you know hole in the wall grab a bun me type place and I think increasingly that's what a lot of people are um, are experiencing when they go out they want to mix it up um, and so that's why, you know, we, we, we're never going to say we're not going to post about anywhere that's new. That's certainly not um, a rule or anything. It's just we like to counter that with um, places that have just been tracking along, doing a really good job for years, but perhaps they don't get any kudos for it. Mm. Yeah. Do, do you have any favourite examples? Places that have just been tracking? Yeah, or places that you've discovered, you know, through the Lazy Susan community that that you've kind of gone, oh, I never knew they were there and, and it, they've become a favourite. Yeah, well, um, a recent favourite actually is a cafe in Mount Roscoe called Mug and Bowl. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it probably wasn't that long ago that it changed hands. So the current owners, I might be wrong. I feel like maybe they've been in there since the beginning of December. I could be completely wrong on that though. Um, and what? And I first heard about that Somebody else had posted about it in Lazy Susan. I was like, I've got to go check this out. Not far from my house. It used to be more of just a traditional kind of cafe menu. But what they're doing there now is kind of, I guess, half Kiwi cafe and half um, Vietnamese menu. Mm. Head chef is, um, she's got background in um, Vietnamese cooking, um, Saigon style. And she's also come from Badutsi. So she's got, you know, full-on kind of European training as well and they are I think producing some of the best Vietnamese food you can get in Auckland at the moment but yet you would you wouldn't have a clue unless you happened to either meet somebody who had been there and was raving about it or come across their Instagram feed um so Lazy Susan's really kind of got that name out there to thousands of people and I know they've been they've had so many Lazy Susans visiting in the last couple of months um, so that's one personal favourite that I discovered lately. Um, and, yeah, I think there's been so many discoveries 
that I've made through Lazy Susan members. I can't even remember off the top of my head. But there's something quite nice about the way that that uh, the way that that evolves, and the fact that the, I mean, you have some absolute super users in the community who, when I you know, and and when I see their names pop up, you know, I'm straight away I'm interested to know what it is that they're saying about uh, whether it's a dumpling house or a great burger or something that that they've discovered, uh, and that certainly seems to be a big part of the flavor of that community is that it is actually about you know a lot of it's about un- not just uncovering great places to eat, but also really proactively sharing that information um, and looking to help one another eat better or find solutions to catering questions or, you know, recommendations for for family birthdays, for big events, um, those sorts of things. Is that something that you've intentionally curated in the community? And and how has that worked? How have you built that culture of that willingness to to share and and be interested in, in what other people are eating and drinking? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think um, 100% you've hit the nail on the head. That is one thing that we definitely set out to to do is to create a space where not only would end users benefit from it because they're going to find out what are the best dishes to eat at A, B or C um, place, but also we really hope that that will help the operators because if somebody's, say, serving, you know, you've got a, a place that's kind of standard cafe fare, but then they've got this little Vietnamese menu on the side, unless people know to go and order specific things from that menu, they might, you know, not continue to operate that when it's not, it's not, you know, selling so well. So that we, I think that would be ultimately one of our aims and we'd be super happy if we can really make that um, work for operators that, um, they're able to get their message out there. So we, yeah, really hope that Lazy Susan can be a medium for people to have these conversations are like, why is this dish like this? It's like this because you use this particular herb and that's how it's supposed to be, you know, increasing the understanding around how food is um, intentionally served and the way that we enjoy it. Mm. I don't know if I've kind of gone off topic there, but that was definitely one of our aims. Um, and it does create, it does uh, take quite a bit of work to, I don't know if curate is the right kind of word, but to kind of steer the community in the right direction. We found at the beginning of uh, 2020 when we went into uh, lockdown for the first time, and it was, I mean, just a sudden change for all the members and the entire hospo community and it was a real time of panic for so many people um i think we really cemented at that point the fact that we wanted the space to be a safe space but also to be somewhere where we weren't going to delve overly into specifics and politics and i i don't like to say we don't do politics here but I mean, we're not going to debate the right or wrong of mm. policy mm-hmm. or um, regulation. Um, it's just it can really divert the attention so quickly and things can get so ugly. Um, so really the focus from then has been like, let's just focus on what we can do to help mm-hmm. and what we can do to still enjoy a hospital scene as much as possible um, given whatever restrictions are in place at the time. Mm. And that's been for the last, you know, two years and 
hopefully there's going to be an end in sight to that soon. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you take some curation, I suppose. Mm. So um, you yourself, you come from a food writing and PR background, um, and it seems like there's a, a strong thread of um, that quest for kind of food authenticity, you know, for for perhaps, um, you know, cuisines that are not in the spotlight um, or, you know, they haven't had their fusion moment in the sun or they haven't been converted to uh, a supermarket source packet. You know, there's, there seems to be that kind of desire to showcase and to point out and to highlight you know perhaps some of the rarer cuisine that we that we might see um in New Zealand can you talk to me a little bit about why that matters and why that thread has been important and what and your observation of what that means for Auckland's eating um culture as a whole yeah I mean I think as much as we can highlight diversity in our food community um you know the better for the for the entire city and the entire country um I, I I just think, you know, we're so close in Auckland, so close to having like a truly multicultural food scene at the moment. We're really getting there. But I still meet I still meet business owners who feel like they have to homogenize the cuisine of their culture to fit in with what the consumer wants here. Mm. And it's yeah, I, I think what the consumer wants is that's the question. And I think there is a demand for things that are uh, haven't been seen here before. There is a demand for things that people have tasted overseas and they can't get a taste of here. But we don't have the critical mass that you do in, say, Sydney or Melbourne mm. even, um, where, you know, if, say, if you want to open a, a Cambodian restaurant, you know you're going to have... Um, enough of an expat community to kind of make that work and then anything else on top of that is a bonus whereas here it's like you you can't necessarily rely on um on an expat community if you come from um somewhere that hasn't traditionally seen a large immigrant population in New Zealand mm. I mean, even just my own kind of family background I'm, my husband's family is Iraqi originally and I've yet to come across an Iraqi restaurant here in Auckland. Um, I know there are a couple of kebab shops out in South and East Auckland with Iraqi owners. And if you're, if you're Iraqi, you know that they're Iraqi, but if you were just walking in off the street, you'd have no idea. It, it might even, you know, they might call themselves a Turkish restaurant or just Middle Eastern, but um, there's certainly still room for more. And I, I think wider than that, the conversation is around people being able to feel pride in their in their um, cultural you know heritage and there are so many really kind of intricate differences in cuisines especially when you're talking about in the Middle East yet we only see quite a homogenous version of Middle Eastern cuisine here mm-hmm I think there's a really interesting um, that filter right of uh, because as soon as you and the thing that I would probably compare it to is American Chinese food versus yeah. actual food in China. Yeah. <laughs> 
and this idea that and this idea that that if you say oh yeah I'm going to I'm going to eat Chinese food that actually even that in of itself is an extraordinary homogenization of a really complex and nuanced yeah. food culture that could be split into regions and subregions and yeah. micro regions within that to even yeah. really get a, a, a real taste of this is what yeah. food from this particular part of the world tastes like um yeah. i'm interested out of this community which obviously it lives and lives and breathes on facebook and there's a website as well um but out of this community has then come a couple of really interesting publications one um one the first one auckland eats uh, and then the next one which is about to be released on, and we'll talk about that in a second um talk to me a little bit about the inspiration for auckland eats and taking something um that taking some of the interests and the depth of knowledge in that community um out of the digital sphere into something real and tangible yeah so um we still have a love of seeing things in print um and I think there's something lasting about that that um can't really be replicated in the digital space um Auckland Eats Volume 1 really was about celebrating what the city looks like at the moment um in terms of the diversity uh in terms of some of the stories behind signature dishes and and there we're really about that idea that if you go to Ema for example well you've got to try you've got to try the shakshuka or you know if you go to um uh just kind of trying to think off the top of my head who's it who else is even in that book um uh if you go to Seoul you can't go past the calamari you know it's like that that kind of food culture I think um it's it's not that you don't want to try new dishes, but it's that idea of having favorite examples of things around the city, places that are just famous for doing something really, really well. Um, and that almost kind of brings us together as a city, I guess, like having that knowledge of you go there and you get this. I love that. It seems very kind of New York to me in a way, you know, mm-hmm. Like everyone knows what they get from a particular deli. Like you go to that deli for that dish, but you go to that deli for this other dish. Mm-hmm. And I love that it's in a way it's the hospo community themselves kind of sharing because they're like, well, I'm going to do this dish really, really well. Um, but, you know, if you want to do some other famous dish from this cuisine, then you can kind of own that one. Um, but yeah, so volume one, total celebration of the now, and then this volume two, completely different, really, really driven by, hey, what about the foundations of the hospitality scene that we've got now? Where did we get these ideas from? Who were the people that helped to shape the scene that we've got today? Um, yeah, and I think that's part of that is just giving thanks back to the people that have worked really hard to help get us where we are. Um and yeah, giving a voice to some of um, the people who worked really hard back then who aren't necessarily so involved in the digital space today. Mm. Um, so uh, it is Auckland Eats Volume 2 and it's called The Prequel. Yeah. which is just which I think is a great it's a great title Not too esoteric <laughs> I kind of thought like hmm, are people going to get this but 
Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, I personally, I don't think too esoteric at all. And I think one of the things that's so fabulous about it is that it's capturing much in the same way that Auckland Eats has captured that that snapshot in time of how we're eating now, um, taking the opportunity to go back into recent history. So I think it covers the sort of the seventies on, really. Yeah. Um, and and so to capture some of those stories and even just reflecting on um, Antoine's in Parnell closing last year after you know decades of service. Um, to be able to capture the story of Tony Astle and some of you know what that what that restaurant meant to many of the chefs who are now leading the pass in places that we eat today, that's an extraordinary piece of um, food history and food storytelling, you know, to capture. And I think what a genius idea, particularly for people who have got a deep sense of connection to Auckland as a as a dining destination. Even more so, those of us that have our eyes on what Auckland as a dining destination of the future might be, to be able to just stretch back and and capture recent history is just remarkable. How hard was it to pull that history together? It was it was not easy, <laughs> especially in a pandemic in level four uh, lockdown again that we found ourselves in. <laughs> we seemed to, <laughs> just we for seemed a change. To- in the thick of production twice in a row right when we hit level four um really quite hard from my perspective um I wrote a fair bit of content and I think like you know any writer part of your job is um is really kind of drawing a story out of the the subject and actually being able to actually get someone to, to agree to share their story in the first place can be tricky and, and in a pandemic more so. You know, people ha- had a lot of going through their heads. Um, a lot of these people were still in the hospitality industry and so they were facing incredibly tough times uh, right in the thick of it with staffing issues, with being completely shut down, with having to pay rents on crazy inner city um, mm building still so I really had to be careful about the way that I went about it um I didn't want to come across as too pushy but yet at the same time you've got to work to a deadline so Mm. um yeah let's scrape under the surface of that a little bit because I think you know and if we were to have a a a writer to writer conversation I think there's you know sometimes it's really easy to lean into or to see the cliches about food writing and telling stories about people who make food and make it wonderful um where you know you hear language like oh it's it's just who I am on a plate or some of those you know more classic cliche colloquial expressions but actually you know, I'm interested in what you're talking about, about the vulnerability, the huge vulnerability that that for many of the characters that are featured in this uh, in this coming book, that, you know, it's not just it's not just a career and it's not just one dish that they became known for. But in many instances, it's been the legacy, um, the legacy and the roll up of of a life's work and a commitment, not just of them, but also their family members and some enormous kind of sacrifices and, and costs along the way. Um, how close does the li- to the line do some of those stories roll in terms of really unpacking some of the humanity that we perhaps don't often think about being behind the past? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were people I spoke to um, who, on the surface, you know, most of their customers probably would have no idea what they've been through to get to get their business to where it is um, and continue to go through a lot of them. Um, 
and and those challenges range from incredibly you know personal challenges through to financial obviously a lot of these people have almost ended up bankrupt or have gone bankrupt at some stage um they've all put huge you know put themselves at huge financial risk most of them um so there's that um there's also just i think especially speaking to people who worked front of house what i found really interesting there was the toll that it can take on you as a person and i can kind of i can kind of see that having worked you know just waited on tables as a university student and and in the years after university and also having worked as a teacher in the past it it's one of those occupations where it's intensely draining <laughs> because you're giving your whole personality every second mm. um and so yeah i think some of those stories is probably what we really drill down into in the book it's less really about it's really less about what's on the plate there are recipes in the book and we do talk about food trends that came and went mm-hmm. but also on that note what i really wanted to get across with this book was i think often when we look back especially into the recent past you know just the last 30 years or so we often are quite disdaining of what was trendy to eat back then and we're like oh mm camembert and smoked chicken and brie paninis oh gross what were we thinking but we need to remember that that's how we might be looking back at what we're eating today in Mm -hmm. five or ten years time and that you know we I just think it's that whole idea of not looking back and being ashamed of what we thought was cool at the time (laughs) (laughs) because what was groundbreaking you know it took effort to bring it to market here Mm, mm -hmm. and even just you know walking into a restaurant today nine times out of ten you're going to see like an open kitchen there'll be a some kind of bar type area these people who started up restaurants in even into the late 80s the struggles that they went through to try and get an you know open kind of bar area was huge that was unheard of up until maybe the late 80s mid 80s yeah um not just because of council regulations but also just the societally the way we thought about alcohol and obviously we still have some pretty major issues um with our relationship there but that idea of like drinking being something that's kind of separated from wider hospitality mm. um so i think it was talking to say talking to Ah, oh, Simon Woolley, um, when he was running the exchange and he, you know, he was serving some pretty amazing food out of what had been a um, a lion pub, um, he said, look, it was, it was ridiculous. You had to be basically serving. You had to be able to get a three-course meal and you had to have kind of steak and two veg on the plate in order to be able to have serve a drink with mm. mm-hmm. it you could run a pub up the road and you could be continually serving people who were intoxicated, who were fighting, who were stabbing each other with bottles, <laughs> and it was okay because that was a pub. Mm. So we've come a very long way in terms of that, but I still think we actually have further to go. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting to, to even just to think in that in that quite discreet example about how much 
how much regulation has changed the way that we eat and drink, but also how much control it still has over the way we eat and drink and engage, you know, and, and what's possible and not possible in terms of reframing the narrative and the relationships that consumers have, you know, but with alcohol as an example, um, yeah. really fascinating. So such a, again, you know, I just, there's so much value in, uh, in being able to look at those stories. Um, and of course, you know, a, a bit of a wild ride because it's not all recent history that's now done in closed up shop. I mean, there are some classic, um, some classic go-to, you know, must have the photograph of, um, of, uh, Brendan from Prego just looking youthful and full of, you know, sparkle. And I think he still looks the same when you walk into Prego of a Sunday afternoon, hoping for a courtyard table. Um, there's something that's quite, you know, it's, it's, it's history, but it's also still quite present. These are, these are classic establishments that are, that are being captured. What's your hope for how people will, um, will pick up uh, volume two and engage with it? What do you hope that they take out of it? I hope that people can see our city for a place that has really, you know, people have really worked hard to shape the way that we eat and drink in Auckland today. It hasn't just happened. Things haven't just fallen into place overnight. It's really been built. And um, I think, you know, if people could appreciate a little bit more, and I'm not saying that we don't, but, you know, just being mindful of the fact that, um there's so much work that's gone into creating this amazing city of eating and drinking. And I think we're, we're so lucky and that's more pertinent right now than ever before to try and hold on to what we've got, because there are places that have been operating for decades that are in real trouble now. Mm, mm. And I, I think, you know, is it's so easy, particularly as an Aucklander, particularly if you're an Aucklander who's traveled internationally to think, Oh yeah, but we're not Melbourne. We're not New York. We're not, XYZ amazing city of, we you know we're not Singapore or any of those places that just are full of life and texture and color and flavor when it comes to food and eating experiences. But at the same time, man, we've come such a long way, you know, there's so much now that was here that just, that wasn't around when, when, when I was growing up, you know, that, so, so there is, there's so much to be celebrated, which is, which is awesome. Um, how, uh, how, what's your expectation of how the Lazy Susan community will, will respond? Are you expecting to sell thousands of copies? We'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> how can people grab a copy? Um, yeah, so on the website is the best place, lazysusan.nz. Um, so they ship out directly and obviously as quickly as possible in these COVID-tainted times. Um, and then hopefully we'll, you know, I mean, it will be amazing when things have returned to some kind of normality when maybe we can hold some events and we can maybe get some, you know, get some things going in relation to the book. Um, that's just something to try and look forward to, I think. Mm. Um, yeah. So maybe that's a little bit of a dream at the moment, but um, we can hope. But yeah, <laughs> I'd love as many people in the Lazy Susan community as possible. And the thing is you don't have to have lived through this. To be honest, I am kind of only on the cusp of um, of really kind of being there for a lot of the period that we cover in the book. I was born in 1980. So, um, you know, a lot of what's mentioned, I was 
probably it was going over my head um, as a child or as a teenager. Mm. Um, and so when we kind of get more into the late 90s, I'm like, yeah, I remember that place. I remember Metropole. I remember, you know, Parnell as it used to be. But um, I still find it absolutely fascinating delving back into what the scene was like in the 80s. And actually there were some things that were so ahead of their time, you know. That's, mm. that's what I love to read about is like, wow, they were doing that back then. That's so cool. <laughs> and actually, I'm... you know, in some ways, Auckland was was really pretty onto it. Um, even in the 80s, like Barrington Salter, who was one of the co-founders of the French Cafe, um, original owners with Annie Mantel, he had, um, you know, he'd worked in Europe and then he'd um, he'd worked in Australia, I think, before he came to Auckland. He said, look, what was happening in Auckland at the time was actually really pretty groundbreaking. In terms mm. of- so interesting how if you just step back just a little bit and have a little bit of that outside perspective, the narrative changes from, oh, we're out there on the edge of the world, you know, the last to get anything and always five years behind the time to actually out there on on a fresh frontier and doing some things that, you know, were perhaps a little uncommon. Uh, the other part of it that I love is this idea of being able to connect into um, for for many people, they would never have known um, they, they would never have known the French Cafe without Simon and Craig and Wright, you know, let alone, you know, the rest of the history or as it as it moves now forward into the future with uh, with Sid and Chant. And so that's, there's again, there's that richness and connection to our own history and our food history, which I think is so exciting. Um, I personally can't wait to dive in um, and, and, and digest it properly, as well as some of those recipes that now you would never think of making ever. <laughs> Anthony talked a little bit about that with the, I think the lamb shanks is one that he was like, whoa, two bottles of wine. Mm-hmm. He did talk about that. We'll, <laughs> we'll play it out for, for everyone as well, because it was just such a, such a wild little snapshot. Uh, what's the due date of the book? When does that, when does it release? Oh, well, it's at the printers now. So it should be getting sent out from next week. How exciting. Uh, and if people want to join the Lazy Susan community on Facebook and find out what they've been missing, um, what's the what's the best thing for them to search for and what should they expect? Um, just search Lazy Susan Auckland. Um, Lazy Susan Travels, if you're also interested in joining for anything, any content outside of Auckland. Uh, expect a pretty busy feed. Um, expect lots of virtual high fives when people discover you know, the perfect um, the perfect spaghetti alla vongole or, um, yeah, there's lots of excitement um, over discovering great food. And I think overall a really positive space where you can feel inspired to go out and enjoy the city, if we're talking about Auckland, um, and discover places that you just didn't even know existed here. Mm-hmm. 